You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. this gospel, the gospel according to Luke chapter 11. In a moment, I'm going to read verses 29 through 36, our text, but in order to set the context, I want to begin by reading verses 14 through 16. So I'm going to read verses 14 through 16, and as soon as I'm done with verse 16, I'm going to skip ahead to verses 29 through 36. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out of him, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. I'll skip down to verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom in Solomon. And behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. May God now bless the preaching of His Word. When we read passages like the one I just read, here's one of the things we must wrestle with and be aware of. We are aware that Jesus was quite controversial. Was he not? Even though, think about this, even though Jesus performed incredible miracles like the one he did for this man who was mute, even though he performed incredible miracles that liberated people from bondage and the brokenness of this world, even though Jesus came to atone for the sins of undeserving people, He was not liked 
or accepted by all. Think about that. Think about this portrait we've seen up to this point in Luke's gospel. All that Jesus has done, all that Jesus has said, you would think everybody that encountered him would say, we're all in. And as we just saw, that is not the response. And, and the question is, why is that? Why is that? That's the question we actually began to consider and answer last week. And it's the question we're going to continue to reflect on, not only today, but throughout the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12. Because that's what the, import, the, the entire rest of chapter 11 and 12 is dealing with. This question of how could people come in contact with Jesus, hear what he said, see what he did, and then respond the way we just saw the crowd respond. If you recall, last week we listened in as, as Jesus addressed those in the crowd who after seeing him do this incredible miracle, casting out this demon, setting this man free, this man who was unable to talk, now his lips are loose, he speaks, and they look at it and they accuse him of being involved in satanic magic. And last week... Jesus addresses their accusations. Today, we're going to listen in as he now responds to those in the crowd who they wanted something more substantial from Jesus than just this miracle. They, they wanted a substantial sign from heaven. They, they wanted something of the apocalyptic nature. That's what the, a sign from heaven means. They don't just want a miracle like Jesus. Call down fire, do something else. They, they're wanting something great from Jesus. And this morning, He is going to address the heart behind their request. I think James Edwards, in his commentary on Luke, really kind of states what's going on quite well when he writes... The demand for a sign is more subtle than accusing Jesus of expelling demons in the name of Beelzebub. It may be as adversarial, however. For according to verse 16, it too is an expression of disbelief. And because it's less alarming, it is probably more widespread. Asking for a sign may be more subtle than accusing Jesus of satanic magic, but don't be fooled. Pay careful attention to the motives, Luke tells us, behind this desire of the crowd for Jesus to give them a sign from heaven. Look again at verse 16. Luke informs us why they asked for this sign to test him. To test him, they kept seeking from a sign from seeking from him a sign from heaven that word test that's used here to my knowledge is only used one other time in Luke's gospel and gets when it's used in chapter 4 when satan tested jesus they're putting jesus to the test and the word seeking here in verse 16 it it, it actually is used in, maybe in a better way of desiring. And if you, trend, if you see that word, how it's used throughout Luke's gospel, 
Half the time it's used, it's positive. The other half of the times, it's negative. So if we were to put this together, I think we, we see what, what's going on here. Those who wanted a spectacular sign were not desiring this because they were uncertain about the identity of Jesus and they just needed more proof. Don't be fooled by that. That's not what they're doing. Jesus isn't being harsh with them because they're just saying, Jesus, we're right here on the edge. Please be patient with us. We just need a little bit more. That's not what they're doing. Jesus would have forbeared with that. He would have had a lot of patience with that. That is not what they're doing here. They didn't need more proof. They are skeptical already. And they are operating out of unbelief. That's why Jesus makes this declaration in verse 29. This generation is an evil generation. Think about what Jesus just said to him. That's a rather serious indictment. He doesn't just say, some of you here, you got, you got some real problems you need to deal with. He, he, he categorizes all of this under the entire generation. This, this culture of people that I'm, I continue to relate to, town after town, village after village, here's my assessment of you. You are Meaning that the reason they're unable to accept Jesus as their Savior has to do with their spiritually corrupt condition. The reason they're not saying, you are Lord, but they say, actually we're going to need a pretty more significant sign from heaven. It is a sign of the state of their Heart, which means that we must not view those in the crowd on that day as innocent or ignorant people needing further proof or just more evidence from Jesus. No, these were skeptics seeking, look, this is what they're doing, seeking to put Jesus on trial and to judge him according to their standards. That's what's happening here. They're not simply kind of on the edge just needing a little bit more evidence. They are putting Jesus on trial. They're the judge, and he's on trial. But here's the sad irony. The sad irony is that instead of Jesus being judged by them, they are the ones on trial, and they've been found guilty, and they deserve judgment for their actions. Look, look at that language here in the text of condemnation. There is a generation that is standing before Jesus, and they are acting as judge. And they're putting Jesus on trial. And Jesus just clears the air really quick and says, oh, it's the other way around. You are not judging me. Don't, don't think for a second. You are judging me. You are on trial. And you've been found guilty. And herein lies the issue fueling their refusal to come to Jesus. If we're trying to get at, okay, why would people keep seeing Jesus do these kind of miracles, hearing Jesus say all the things that he said, and, and why would people reject him? Here's, here's, here's one of the issues that's fueling their refusal to come to Jesus. The reason they don't like Jesus has nothing to do with what he has done or has not done. The reason they don't like Jesus is because of the message he proclaims. 
I think it was very observant of one commentator, Daryl Bach, when he says the word of God goes unheeded in the midst of all this activity. You notice this? All this time, talk of signs, all of this stuff. And guess what? The one thing that hasn't happened. Do you remember the passage before? Where the one the woman all of a sudden hears Jesus say all of these things and she yells out, Blessed is your mother. The, the, the woman that gave birth to you. And Jesus says, Blessed is the one who hears my word and keeps it. What's the one thing that's not going on here? All of this talk about signs and how he's doing all of this stuff. They're not responding to the word that Jesus has been proclaiming. See, if we read this story in light of the rest of Luke's gospel, here's what we know Jesus did in every town. Therefore, he was doing here. Jesus called these crowds to repentance. He called them to repentance, therefore implying they were sinners who were, not, who were not in good standing with God. And as we see, his message was not well received, was it? As he told these folks who thought they were in good standing because of their religious background, they, they did not like this. See, Jesus, as we Heard early on in Luke's gospel in every town and village. He said he has one reason he's come. He's come to proclaim the good news of salvation. And this good news of salvation that he proclaims. He would make available by dying on the cross in the place of sinners. But get this. In order for anyone to receive this good news Jesus is offering. They first must accept the bad news. Oh, Jesus is offering not just good news, the best news in all the world for all time. But they cannot receive the good news. And we cannot receive the good news until we accept the bad news. See, what we discover in today's passage is that when people don't accept the bad news, they will not come to Jesus as their Savior. And because that's true, I think it would benefit, and I know it would benefit us for us to think carefully about the implications of this truth for our own life. That we must not gloss over the bad news. Because if there is no bad news, there's no need for the good news. Did you notice that every song we sang this morning had a three-letter word that we sang about sin? Did you notice every song we sang this morning? We sang about our sin. We sang about the bad news, but we rejoiced in the good news. So I want us to think about the implications of this truth that until we take in the bad news, we can't respond to the good news. And I actually want to break up our text along those lines. Here, here's into two parts this morning. Here's our outline. Point one, verses 29 through 32. We're, we're going to talk about responding to the bad news. I want us to go back to verse 29. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say to this um, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. 
It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What did Jesus mean when he makes this pronouncement over this crowd, these people that say, Jesus, we need a, we need a substantial, apocalyptic kind of sign from heaven. And Jesus says the only sign this evil generation is going to get is they're going to receive the sign of Jonah. Well, Jesus goes on to tell us what that means in verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now we've got to think back for just a moment to the story of Jonah that's recorded in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. How did Jonah become a sign to the people of Nineveh? Think about it. How did, he, how did he become a sign to them? He was sent by God to deliver a message of judgment. Him showing up was a sign to them, you're not in good standing with God. And he was, declare, was told to declare a message of judgment. But if those hearing the message were to repent, they would be spared from judgment. Well, if Jesus was like Jonah to this particular generation, that means he was sent to tell them all is not well. I'm glad you've memorized the Torah. I'm glad you never missed time in the temple to pray. You are not right with God. And if they were to have repented and put their trust in Jesus, they too would have been saved from judgment. But instead of responding to Jesus, it appears that they reject Him. And their rejection is so outrageous and scandalous that if others were from the past were brought back from the dead, they, they, if they were present, they would have condemned this generation and called them evil. To demonstrate just how serious this generation's rejection of Jesus really is, Jesus calls on some witnesses to render judgment. Remember, they think they're putting Jesus on trial. They're on trial, and Jesus calls his first witness. I'll, I'll, I'll call the queen of the south. I'll call the queen of the south. She's my first witness. We know of her as the queen of Sheba. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you remember from 1 Kings chapter 10 what happened? Solomon, when he was made king, God told him, if, you, if there's one thing I could give you that would help you rule this kingdom and be a faithful king, what would you ask for? Solomon says, give me wisdom. And God says, I will give you wisdom in abundance. And Solomon becomes so wise that, that it's known, not just in Israel, but throughout the world, that this woman who lived far off, she travels a great distance to benefit from the wisdom of Solomon. 
Now, why does Jesus use her as a witness against this generation? Here's why. Because if she, a Gentile, traveled a long way to glean from the wisdom of Solomon, and yet one greater than Solomon is standing right in front of them, and yet they are unresponsive, how is that not worthy of condemnation? He's saying, do you not see how guilty you are? A Gentile woman took a long trip, no airplanes, no cars, no boats, took a long trip just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I am standing in front of you and I am greater than Solomon. If she was here, she would pronounce the same verdict. Now what does it mean when Jesus says he's greater than Solomon? Well, he's not just greater in degree. He's greater in kind. He's not just saying, well, if Solomon had lots of wisdom, Jesus has like 10 times more wisdom. No. He's not just greater in degree. He's greater in kind. See, Solomon imparted wisdom from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. Solomon was talking about the subject of wisdom. Jesus is the subject of wisdom. Solomon was simply talking about the subject. Jesus shows up and says, don't you realize I am the subject? I am the wise one. And yet, they still do not listen. So Jesus brings a second witness. He goes back to the story of Jonah, and he claimed that if the Ninevites themselves were there, they would have nothing but condemnation to offer this generation. So witness number two, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you recall from the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet who was sent by God to preach to the Ninevites. And if you remember the story, it is like no other prophetic book because God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Jonah. And Jonah says, not happening. Gets on a boat. If Nineveh's that way, Jonah got on a boat and said, I'm going that way. And when God disrupts his plan on the boat, Jonah still doesn't relent. He tells everybody, guess what? Just throw me overboard and let me drown. I would rather go to the bottom of the sea than go do what I've been called to do. But here's the the beautiful part. God still used this reluctant prophet. A big sea creature swallows him up. And delivers him safely onto the beach. Spits him out and says, Jonah, I think it's pretty clear. You can't, you can't escape this calling. Now go do what you're called to do. And Jonah arrives in the great city of Nineveh. He preaches this message of judgment. Do you remember what happened? The entire city, starting with the king, they all repented. They all 
repented, and God relinquished his judgment against them. And yet, Jesus is greater than Jonah. He is no reluctant prophet. He didn't come to earth from heaven because the Father had to twist his arm. You remember what Jesus said in John 10? I lay down my life. No one can take it from me. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. Jesus is no reluctant prophet like Jonah. He, he came. Not like Jonah who had a hardness of heart. Jesus was carrying us on his heart when he came. And guess, that, guess what? Jesus Jesus would not spend three days in the belly of a fish like Jonah. Instead, he spent three days in the belly of the earth and he did so as the triumphant Savior who conquered sin and the grave. One greater than Jonah had arrived and yet these people didn't respond to the message of Jesus the way the Ninevites responded to Jonah's preaching. See, right then and right there, had they repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, they would have been forgiven of their sin and they would have received the gift of salvation from God. But they did not respond to the good news. They did not respond to the good news that Jesus had been declaring it. They rejected the bad news. They rejected it. But get this. Jesus told them anyway. Jesus told them anyway. Church, Jesus models for us what, what true evangelism looks like. Jesus did not allow the size of the crowd to be an indicator of people's faith in him or their approval of him. We can just read right past it, but it's amazing in verse 29 that it says, as the crowd was increasing in size, that's the moment that Jesus says, this is an evil generation. Now, how many people would, would make that same conclusion? It's a full house. Everybody must love Jesus and be enamored. This is revival. <laughs> Jesus sees the full house and says, this is an evil generation. Your numbers don't mean anything about the state of your heart. And Jesus, as we see, boldly confronted the crowd about their sin. See, Jesus confronted the crowd because he loved them enough to tell them what they needed to hear. He loved them enough to look them in the eye and not just say some fluffy words to keep the crowd happy. He loved them enough to say everything is not okay. And you need to repent. And church, if we're going to be a faithful witness both as a church and as individual Christians, we must follow Jesus' example. 
as I got to this point in my sermon preparation, I was just thinking about what Jesus did here and how bold it was and how loving it was. I was reminded of the testimony from a fellow member of our congregation. So I want to share with you, we want to start doing this more often, sharing with you testimonies from from those in our church and how someone shared with them the gospel. And this morning I want to tell you a little bit about Brent Thompson's story. Brent and his wife, Samantha, have been coming to LifeGate for almost a year now. I think they started coming last February. Since then they have joined our church. They serve in several different capacities on Sunday mornings. And I asked Brent if I could tell some of his story because I think it illustrates so well what we just encountered here in Luke 11. Brent grew up going to church and for all of his teenage and right up into college, he would have considered himself a Christian. Had you asked Brent about Jesus, he would have acknowledged that Jesus was God, the Son incarnate, who died for his sins. After graduating from high school, Brent went away to a small Christian college in South Carolina where he was living at that time. And while he was there, Brent joined a fraternity. That's the thing he really wanted to do while he was at that college. He joined this fraternity in many ways. I think Brent would say this fraternity shaped his identity and it directed his pursuits. In this fraternity, Brent began to party. and He began to live for himself. But all the while, believing he was good with God. After coming out of some of those parties, intoxicated and drunk, have you asked him, are you a Christian? He would have said, absolutely. But looking back now, Brent would tell you, he was not a Christian at that time. Though he grew up in church, and though he could make the right confession about Jesus with his mouth, there's no fruit in his life that he was truly saved. But here's the good news. God in his kindness placed some men in Brent's life. Men like his RA. Brent lived in a dorm. And his RA just happened to be a part of a ministry called Campus Outreach. And men like his RA and some of these other men, they began to pursue Brent. They began to witness to Brent. They began to pray for Brent. They loved him and they sought to care for him. And from the start of school till December, over a four month period, as they interacted with Brent, they had the courage to lovingly confront Brent that his lifestyle and his confession did not match up. They loved him enough to say, brother, you can't say that you are Christian and bear no fruit. They confronted him and they called him to repentance. I I love how Brent put it. I thought this was so so wise of him to pick up on and so wise for these these college guys to share the gospel in such a way. This this is Brent's words. 
He said, they didn't tell me that I needed to make Jesus my Lord. They informed me that Jesus was the Lord of everything. He was the Lord of my life, whether I was aware of it or not. The question was whether I would recognize it and submit to him. They didn't say, hey, Brent, you need to make Jesus Lord. Brent, he is your Lord. The problem is you're acting like he's not. So the question is, are you going to respond? And one night, after four months of these men loving him, witnessing to him, on December 27th of 2009, Brent opens up his Bible to Isaiah 59, verse 2. And he read these words. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. And God used that passage to break his heart. And to bring him to saving faith. See, God used that passage and the witness of his friends to show Brent that he was not in right relationship with God and that he was a sinner who needed to repent of his son sins and tr- uh, trust in Christ completely. See, because of the witness of these men who loved Brent enough to pray for him boldly and to confront him, Brent is now a new man with a new identity. And here's what I love when we talked on Friday over the phone and he was telling me the details about his testimony. He said there's one word, one word that would describe the posture of these men who witnessed to him. He said the one word that describes all the ways they interacted with me is bold. He said they loved me boldly. They were always in my life. They would have done anything for me. He said they prayed for me boldly. On one occasion, I don't remember the storyline, uh, the, the timeline, Brent. I apologize. But at one point, Brent goes into his RA's room to get something. And he looks down at his desk. And there's his RA's prayer list. And Brent's on that list. And it says, pray that Brent would quit his fraternity and repent of his sins. His friends loved him boldly. Prayed for him boldly. And confronted him boldly. May we be like that as a church. May we be bold in our love, bold in our prayer, and bold in our witness. And by doing so, may we see many people come to saving faith in 2024. See, Jesus loved these people in front of him who were Asking for a sign, he loved them enough to tell them what they needed to hear. You must repent. Now that brings us to verses 33 through 36 in this last part. We won't spend a long time here. Receiving the good news as the the heading of this section. Responding to the bad news. What we looked at, now we're going to talk about receiving the good news. And I just want to read verses 33 through 36 again. Jesus went on to say, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. 
so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, is when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What's Jesus saying here? Well, if we remember back to chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, there Luke records Jesus saying something very similar to what we just read here in verses 33 through 36. He tells his disciples, take care how you hear. Remember Jesus telling them, make sure you take care how you hear. Well, in chapter 11, Jesus is saying something very similar, but now he changes the metaphor, and instead of focusing on ears and hearing, notice what he does. He draws attention to the eye and to seeing. See, the point Jesus was making using this illustrative example is simple but profound. Here's the point Jesus was saying. The light of Christ is meant to be seen by us and to illuminate our life. Look at verse 36. We're to see in such a way that our whole life radiates this light. We're to see Christ, and it is to illuminate our whole life. But Jesus says, if our eyes are bad, we will not see the light, but will remain in darkness. Look again at verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Do you get what Jesus is saying? He's saying to us this morning, pay attention to what you're looking at. Pay attention to what you're looking at. If your eyes are blind to sin, and if your eyes are fixed on other things besides God, you will not be able to see Christ or treasure Him as you ought. See, when we ignore our sin and the guilt our sin deserves, we need no Savior. When we don't see the depths and depravity of our hearts, then why in the world would we see Jesus as glorious? Let, let, let me remind us of this wonderful, wonderful thing Jesus said back in chapter, chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, after he was hanging out with sinners and the Pharisees and the, tax and the scribes grumbled at him doing this. Jesus said this in verse 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. Did you hear that? If you don't think you're sick, what do you not do? Go to the doctor. If you don't think you're a sinner, what do you not do? Repent. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is the light they are to be looking at. But do you know why many of them look at him? And they come up with things like, well, he must be doing satanic magic. Or, you know what? We're going to need more signs. He's saying, it's because your eyes are bad. What does he mean by that? You don't see how wicked you really are. All your religious practices that you're doing has blinded you and made you think and deceived you into thinking, I'm good. And as long as we think we are good, we will not, we will not see Jesus as we ought. See, it's when we see the depths of our sin and when we feel the weight of our guilt before God, then, then and only then will we see the perfect and precious remedy that God has provided for us in the person and work of Jesus. Oh, what God has provided for us in Jesus, it, it is perfect and it is precious, but we will not see it as, as such until we see the depths of our sin and feel the weight of our guilt. Listen, churches that never preach about sin can never call people to treasure Jesus. And Christians who shy away from talking about sin and who never confess their sin will not grow in their love for Jesus. We must, we must respond to the bad news before we can receive the good news. So here's what I want to do in closing. I want to exhort us all to do the following. I want to encourage you to do this not only today, but every day. Take a good, long, honest look at yourself. And then take a much longer look at Jesus. If for some reason you are still under the impression that you're doing quite well, take a good, long look at yourself. You can honestly say that your thoughts and your actions and your deeds are perfect since you woke up this morning, over the weekend, all last week. We know the desires of our hearts. We know the things that come up in our minds. We know the judgments the lust, the cravings, the greed. Things that we can hide from everybody else because we have enough self-control to not respond that way. But we're not fooling ourselves. We shouldn't be. So we need to take a good, hard, long look at ourselves. But we're only doing that so we can take a much longer look at Jesus. And guess what? That's an encouraging sight. 
Because when we look at Jesus, all of our mess and our mistakes and our sins and our acts of rebellion have been paid for. Right? All our mistakes, all of our messes that we've made, Jesus has paid it all. John Newton, who we heard about in Sunday school this morning, he was the former slave ship captain who upon coming to saving faith became a pastor and he's probably most known for the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton was a avid letter writer and is probably most known today besides that hymn Amazing Grace. He's probably most known for his letters. And he wrote a letter to a friend, actually to a man in his congregation who who was struggling with doubt because of his ongoing sin. And there's a line in this letter. I'm only going to read you an excerpt. There's a line from this letter that has been used by songwriters to craft the song we began with this morning, His Mercy is More. Listen to what John Newton wrote this friend who was discouraged and doubting because of his ongoing battle with sin. He said, you have one hard lesson to learn, that is, the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it is needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. I hope what you find in yourself by daily experience will humble you, but not discourage you. Humble you it should, and I believe it does. Are not you amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinketh of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty... Our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? And then listen to what he says. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he has power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief. And the remainder to a legal spirit. These evils are not removed in a day, my friend. Wait on the Lord. And he will enable you to see more. More of his power. And more of the grace of our high priest. And then he ends the letter this way. The more you know him. The better you will trust him. The more you trust him the better you will love him. The more you love him, the better you will serve him. Oh, how encouraging was Newton's words to this brother. But guess what he didn't say? Oh, don't don't, don't feel guilty. Oh, something's hard on yourself. Oh, your sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. And when we see that, 
then we can see Christ. And when we see Christ, our whole life is meant to shine brightly like a lamp. May God make that happen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would respond now to your word. You have addressed us. You have brought things to our mind and to our hearts as we've been listening to your word. Now I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond, not putting off what we're what we're aware of that you're doing right now. Where you're bringing us under conviction. Lord, may we, may we not be people who are afraid to look at the, the horrors of our own heart. Lord, may we not be a people who shy away from the bad news because we are so aware of the good news. So Lord, help us to be a people who are bold in our witness. And may we be a people who see rightly. So Lord, give us eyes to see now. Give us eyes to see all that we need to see and then give us Lord the the faith and the willingness to trust you to live it out today tomorrow throughout the rest of our days we pray this in Jesus name Amen